This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Hope Springs Eternal in the Priestly Breast, a research study on procedural justice for priests, diocesan and religious, and the author is Father James Valadares. And Father James joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Father James. Thank good morning. Good morning, Steve. Well, <laughs> Even though it's close tonight for me, yes, good morning. Yes, in, in Australia, it's very late in the evening as we That's record correct. this interview. So great to have you with us, and everyone is going to learn so much from you. You're such an yeah. advocate of, of fairness and justice and just the uh, practicing what Jesus taught, right? That's correct. Right. That's well, correct. let me read a little yeah. bit about your book, because this is a... Uh, a very, very huge problem amongst Catholic priests, this whole idea of being accused falsely and then never yep. given their day in court, I guess, right? Yep, absolutely. This is what absolutely. you say. I am appalled at the gross injustices to which priests have been unscrupulously subjected and the callous apathy of their bishops and religious superiors. Undoubtedly, priests and religious are bound by the vow of obedience. However, this does not mean they can be treated as tools of convenience to be used when needed and discarded when not. Sadly, priests do not have anyone to champion their cause, and this is precisely why I was motivated to make this study. Well, it took you three years to make this study. That's correct. And That's correct. Uh, before we get into the details of this study and your book and your advocacy, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Father James. Well done. Sure, Steve. Uh, so, Steve, to begin with, I thank you sincerely for having me on this program. Quite honestly, I ask for your patience and support. As a preacher, I can stand in any pulpit and face any congregation. But speaking to an interview on the radio, and especially one at the other end of the world, is a lot more daunting. So please do, patient, do be patient with me. I am originally from Bombay, India. That is where I grew up and was ordained a priest after completing my seminary studies. I served the Archdiocese of Bombay for 19 years, from 1969 to 1988. In mid-1988, I emigrated to Australia and the Archdiocese of Adelaide in South Australia. This is where I served in the priestly ministry over the past 24 years. When it comes to the issue of sexual abuse, Steve, I consider myself a survivor's advocate. But I do realize that false accusations occur, and such accusations are devastating to the falsely accused. In the realm of clergy abuse, a priest or religious falsely accused of molestation is essentially ruined for life. Hence, we need to support not only the survivors of clergy abuse, but also those priests and religious who are innocent of the crimes of which they are accused. Yes, the percentage of false accusations is relatively small, 
but still, even one false accusation is one too many. Well, there are many who have pointed their finger very uh, from the public of of the of sexual abuse by certain Catholic priests. It unfortunately yes. labels everybody, doesn't it? That is very correct. Uh, priests have been literally literally being tarred with the same brush. And you say right now in America there are uh, some 1,000 priests that are in limbo because they've been that falsely accused. Tell us about that situation. This is one thing that I picked up on my research. There are about 1,000 priests. Now, where, in which part of the states, I cannot tell. But I can only say that they are in limbo in the sense that they have been falsely accused, not convicted, but not reinstated either. So the poor individuals are in limbo because they do not know their status. Sadly, they have nowhere to live. They have no income, and many of them are literally counting on the goodwill and charity of either relatives or friends. So they are guilty until proven innocent. That's correct. That's, that's the premise on which uh, the, the process works so far. And that is why I'm strongly advocating a complete change, innocent until proven guilty. This has been guaranteed by the statutes of rights, to every individual citizen of every country. But in the case of this kind of system where you have, uh, uh, I guess, extreme authority at the top, uh, yes. it's where that kind of authority, you can have uh, corruption, you can, uh, you know, absolute power. Therefore, yes. it can really pose a problem for an individual falsely accused. Absolutely. Now, every priest and religious, just on the day of his ordination, makes a pledge of obedience, either to his bishop or to his religious superior. So there's a kind of bilateral agreement. I'm going to work with you and for you on the condition that you will support and encourage me. Sadly, it's, um, the, the contract now appears to be unilateral. The priest will do whatever he is told to do, and he does it under obedience, whether he likes it or not. And at the same time, you are also an advocate for uh, innocent victims, too, that have unfortunately, so tragically, uh, have uh, you know, been inflicted with some kind of abuse by Catholic priests. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So on that, I will, I will definitely not deny it. In fact... As a mark of solidarity, honesty, and humility, I sincerely apologize, because the harm done is irreversible and irreparable. All we can do now is to, is to systematically generate a climate of trust and literally usher in a new era. So there is this standard of zero tolerance. That is correct. Without that any evidence. And in my personal opinion, Steve, a zero-tolerance policy without due process, I repeat, without due process, that de facto impugns the reputations of the accused is immoral. The church has a duty to protect the innocent, even if the innocent is a priest. Of course, the church has a moral duty to make sure that the scandal of abuse and cover-up is never repeated, but it cannot willfully sacrifice the reputations of the innocent. I'd like to repeat that sentence, Steve, because it's so, so crucial in our discussion. The Church has a moral duty to make sure 
that the scandal of abuse and cover-up is never repeated, but it cannot willfully sacrifice the reputations of the innocent. The end does not justify the means. And to the best of your knowledge, there's no yeah. other book on this particular subject. You're the one, the only one that is the warning voice. To the best of my knowledge, yes. I have never seen any other work on this particular subject. There have what... been articles, right. but nonetheless, not one consolidated work championing the cause of truth and justice for priests. Now, any uh, of kind of pressure from the hierarchy and the church against what you're doing? I can speak for myself because I'm in Adelaide, South Australia. I asked the bishop for his permission to do this study, and he very generously gave it to me. But when I finished my work and presented him for his endorsement or his encouragement, he washed his hands clean. <laughs> <laughs> as much as say, no, 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 don't make me part of this. <laughs> so he, he is but, not endorsing but, you. He just gave you permission to do the study. That's correct. But when I presented it to him, and mind you, as a gentleman, as a priest, I presented the entire manuscript for his scrutiny and his approval. Does the Pope know of this work? I've even written to the Holy Father a four-page letter telling him precisely about my work, and I've got no response. Well, let's talk about your book, how uh, it focuses on different aspects of uh, this very important, uh, just real basic right of every individual. Now, you say there are 20 chapters, and each of them will strike a chord in every reader's heart, especially Absolutely. priests and religious. Uh, Absolutely. Why is that? Okay. These are, the, these are the reasons. I'm deeply troubled by the zero-tolerance policy that treats priests as if they were guilty unless they can manage to prove, prove themselves innocent. As is clearly evident, the damage to the accused is immediate, grave, and irreparable, and the process for addressing it has little regard for any form of meaningful due process. This must not be the last word in a church built upon the truth of the Gospels. I repeat, this must not be the last word in a church built upon the truth of the Gospels. It has been convincingly proved that an overwhelming majority of the allegations made against priests have been fraudulent and were motivated solely by the lure of big money. Also, Many of the claims are deemed credible, I put credible in inverted commas, solely because a diocese fears litigation and decides to settle the claim demanded. For instance, in 2002, the New Hampshire Diocese in Manchester faced accusations of abuse from 62 individuals. Rather than spending the resources and the time looking into the merits of the cases, Diocesan officials did not even ask for specifics, such as the dates and the specific allegations for the claims. This was reported in the New Hampshire Union Leader on the 27th of November 2002. It was almost as simple as a trip to the ATM machine. I've never seen anything like it, a pleased and much richer plaintiff att attorney admitted. And this is reported by David Pierre Jr. in his book, Double Standards. For, for, for more precision, pages 125 to 126, okay? One accuser whose false allegations landed an innocent priest in jail 
provided a disturbing account of how he was enticed by others into falsely accusing the priest with the promise of a vast windfall of money. It is in fact money, not sex, not abuse, and not celibacy, that has driven the scandal since 2002 and sabotaged the civil liberties of accused priests. Around the United States, bishops and other Catholic leaders have rallied support to oppose extensions of civil statutes of limitations. As more than one bishop has pointed out, statutes of limitations exist in legal systems to promote justice, not hinder it. Witnesses die, memories fade, facts are blurred, and justice subverted by old claims. Our bishops are justified in opposing ex post facto laws that have but one goal, to target and bankrupt the Catholic Church. And finally, Steve, attorney David J. Steyer submitted to the Los Angeles County Superior Court his report, compiled on the basis of his personal investigations, along with the aid of a retired FBI agent working with him, this was his conclusion. About one half of the claims made in the clergy cases were either entirely false or so greatly exaggerated that the truth would not have supported a prosecutable claim for child sexual abuse. Father so does James, that make some sense? Yes. Oh, yes. Very well said. Uh, very well uh, painted the picture very vividly yes. of just we have a just a uh, couple minutes left here uh yes. one of the things you say it is of paramount importance to sift the wheat from the chaff and that's so, very correct so very correct so how will this be done oh that's exactly the thrust of my book where i've laid down the actual procedure a procedure that will safeguard the accused the accuser and the cause of justice and truth well, it sounds like an incredible work uh, that's yes. taken you many, yes. many years we to... Must, we must ensure justice yes. to everyone involved. So far, there's been a total disregard for justice for priests. By all means, we need to protect those who, are, who have been abused, fine, or who have a credible, credible claim, but not, not at the expense of truth and justice to priests. Well, this book uh, has been universally hailed as much needed, and also yes. uh, you're yes. being uh, congratulated uh, for the courage to champion the cause. Are, are you getting a lot of feedback from fellow priests? Well, well, no, not as yet, not as yet. But but while I, while I was in the states, yes, there were very many lay people and priests very interested in my work. Can I make one last? Oh, point please, please. Yeah, we, we have a little time left. Yeah, go ahead. Just last one last point. My entire work is based on the words of Stephen L. Carter, who is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Yale University. This is how he defines integrity, discerning what is right and what is wrong, acting on what you have discerned, even at personal cost, saying openly that you are acting on your understanding of right from wrong. So vitally essential is integrity in both private and public lives that opines Carter, the American dream may crumble, and the greatness of our democracy along with it. Very well said, and unfortunately a, a, a convicting kind of statement. Very well That's said. Right. And all through Steve, I have consistently abided by Scripture, the traditions of the Church, the official teachings of the Church, uh, 
the pronouncements of the Holy Father, moral theology, canon law, and pastoral practice. We've been listening to Father James Valadares. He is the author of his book, Hope Springs Eternal in the Priestly Breast, a research study on procedural justice for priests, diocesan, and religious. Father, tell us how to get your book. It's, it's available with iUniverse, but they haven't as yet given me the ISBN. It's, and it's going to be priced at twenty two ninety five. So they can go to iUniverse.com and, and search it there? It should be available with iUniverse.com. Right. And, of course, uh, I'm sure it will be available through online booksellers and uh, stores as well. You just have to ask for it. So That's very correct. Father James, we really appreciated you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. You've really made it so very easy, and I'm very grateful to you. God bless you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Inficasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now... These deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio, with host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Foxes in the Vineyard, Templars. Nazis and the Battle for Jerusalem. And the author is Michael J. Cooper, and Michael joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Michael. Uh, Hello, Stephen. Good to have you with us. This is going to uh, bring us right into focus. Obviously, we hear uh, all the... uh, intrigue and fine, uh, well, it's we're, we're like any moment we're thinking that there's going to be war in the Middle East, and uh, you kind of cover a lot of 
different issues, but in a very unique way, because we have the Nazis involved in this book. Let me read what you have written. An American history professor travels to Palestine after World War II and before the first Arab-Israeli war to find that covert Nazi personnel have infiltrated the British military as well as both sides of the conflict, sowing discord as they maneuver to seize Jerusalem as the new capital of the Third Reich. Well, that sounds like quite a plot, quite a uh, theme running through this book. Uh, Before you tell us why you decided to do this, tell us a little bit about yourself and, of course, your life in Israel. Sure. I emigrated uh, to Israel in 1966, soon after graduating high school in Northern California, and I lived there for 11 years. I spent the first year basically just figuring out Hebrew and uh, learning where to shop. Uh, After a year, I started uh, going to school, first at the Hebrew University for a couple of years, and then I got into medical school in Tel Aviv, and I spent another six years with that, and then a few more years. Total came to about 11 years. I eventually figured out that, uh, as with many Israeli medical school graduates, I would want to specialize in the United States, and I came back here in 1977, and I haven't gone back since, other than for uh, medical missions, which I've uh, done frequently over the last few years in the occupied territories. So what was the motivation to take this approach? The motivation to go to Israel, the motivation to uh, write this book uh, from this vantage point. Right, from this vantage point, writing your book. Yeah. Well, uh, in one of my midlife crises, I uh, decided I wanted to move from writing uh, for medical journals uh, to writing historical fiction. And what motivated me chiefly, apart from the midlife crisis, was the assassination of uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in the mid-90s. This was obviously a profound turning point because uh, Prime Minister Rabin was moving very clearly and very carefully uh, towards uh, some type of peace settlement with the Palestinians. Obviously, it wasn't perfect, uh, and it was a road, but it was clearly leading somewhere. Uh, And his assassination obviously derailed uh, that effort and... uh, We really haven't gotten on track since. It was this focal point that uh, created in me a desire to enunciate what I saw as uh, one of the chief problems, which is uh, elements on both sides of the conflict uh, pulling in opposite directions and really polarizing the uh, dynamic uh, to kind of create a ground zero where voices of moderation and reason Uh, can't really be heard over the uh, shouting uh, from the extremes and the violence from the extremes. So the the notion of uh, Nazis, obviously I wanted to write a good uh, old-fashioned heroic epic uh, in the context of uh, this historical or speculative fiction, Um, and I thought that this also might be an interesting metaphor uh, for this type of ultra-nationalism, militarism, and uh, sort of a mystical religious uh, fervor that has really infected the conflict. Was there really Nazi presence in Palestine? Well, that's also a very interesting historical point, and we explore that in the novel, uh, which obviously blurs uh, between historical fact 
and historical fiction. Uh, and I might say parenthetically, uh, before I answer your question, that the challenge of writing a book about uh, Israel-Palestine uh, in regards to historical fact is problematic because both sides have their own set of facts, and they regard the other as clinging to fiction. And so when you approach uh, any writing about Israel-Palestine, you have that problem that you're not necessarily dealing with the same set of facts, and it's hard to have a dialogue uh, when that's the case. Uh, when you then inject the, qu the question of historical fiction, you, you know, obviously compound the confusion, potentially. Um, but I, I include in the book some references to some good uh, recent uh, histories uh, by some uh, Israeli uh, uh, historians who have uh, taken a very clear look at the facts on both sides. So I think that might help clarify for the reader um, uh, and help uh, draw a line between the fact and the fiction. In regards to your question as to the historical fact of the Nazis in Palestine, both before and during the Third Reich, the, there's a lot of fact. Uh, first issue is that the Vichy French, uh, which were basically allied with Nazi Germany, were in uh, uh, northern uh, Palestine, actually more toward Lebanon. And uh, there's also facts that there were uh, contacts between the Third Reich and elements of both the uh, Jewish uh, Yeshuv or the settlement, as well as uh, and very clearly with uh, certain elements of the Arab population, uh, most famously the uh, Mufti um, uh, Husseini was a very prominent uh, Nazi collaborator, uh, and there were, were obviously other individuals. So there are, in the context of uh, the, the book, uh, certainly these elements that are highlighted. Well, it's... April 1948, and a Boston University history professor, Evan Sinclair, gets notified that some news about his father is missing in Palestine. So kind of set this up and tell us about uh, these characters. Well, Evan is, a, uh, as you said, a professor of uh, history at Boston University. Uh, he's become estranged uh, from his father, and uh, that will be uh, expanded in, uh, in books, hopefully to yet appear. Uh, but uh, when he's informed that his father is missing, uh, though he ambivalates a bit, he, he comes back to Palestine uh, to look for him, and he, he does eventually find his father, and, and uh, far more, he also finds a woman that he had known uh, 30 years before and fallen in love with, uh, and, of course, he discovers uh, this residue of uh, Nazi Germany uh, covertly present in that part of the world uh, during that time. Uh, his father, uh, Clive Sinclair, again, is in his uh, 70s as the novel opens, and he's a, sort of a lovable book curmudgeon uh, who uh, enjoys uh, sort of uh, striking out on his own and indeed, when Evan uh, finds him uh, in uh, when Evan finds him uh, in Jerusalem, it's actually in an underground chamber 
um, adjacent to the uh, Temple Mount. So does Mervyn Smith or Smythe, is he a main one of the main characters as well? He is indeed. He's an old friend of Clive, an old friend of the family, and he uh, is a very uh, central character in uh, this novel, uh, both as a person who helps move the action forward as, as well as uh, an individual with a surprising uh, past himself. So the Nazis have a goal. They're using, as you write, counterintelligence and terror to create uh, hatred and fear amongst the Arabs and the Jews. They're trying to, I guess, drive that wedge and then, and then uh, occupy the space that's uh, <laughs> removed, I guess, so they can get their foot in, into uh, the political realm and also, I guess, the trying to, uh, as you put it, seize Jerusalem as the capital of a reborn Third Reich. Uh, tell right. us some yeah, of the particulars of that. Yeah, this, I, th- I thought, uh, made a lot of uh, historical uh, fictional sense from the standpoint of any post-colonial power vacuum uh, really is uh, rife uh, for uh, opportunity uh, for uh, injection, uh, especially if you're dealing with uh, the type of uh, emotional range uh, and overheated uh, rhetoric uh, that infect uh, this type of conflict, there's plenty of opportunities for subterfuge. And we also have a treasure that they're after, dealing with the Knights Templar. Yeah, here too, I wanted to bring in an element uh, beyond the metaphor of the Nazis, also uh, elements that were indicative of the other side. Uh, we have not only the metaphorical evil, we also have the metaphorical good. And that's where the Templars and their presence in, in the uh, novel come in. You have fictional characters, but you also have characters based on history, like Field Marshal Edwin Rommel. Correct. And the book actually opens with a prologue where uh, Rommel is orchestrating the uh, uh, battles in North Africa that are coming to a a close. Uh, And when 20 transport planes arrive, uh, he feels he's finally going to receive the resupply that he so desperately needs. And much to his surprise, the planes are empty. Again, this is historical fiction. Uh, And uh, he's informed by the SS officer who's accompanied the empty planes that, indeed, uh, there's going to be a, re- a redeployment elsewhere. That elsewhere is, is not obvious until the novel unfolds. But the elsewhere, obviously, is in the Mideast. You describe your book as similar to Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, of course, that with this uh, applying those elements to this Arab-Israeli conflict. Did that book influence you? That book actually uh, came out long after I conceived and, and wrote many of uh, the chapters of, of this book, any of the same uh, reference material that Dan used. Obviously, uh, he went in an interesting and different uh, direction, um, but I was very gratified to see when his uh, novel came out that there was really an interest uh, and uh, an excitement about uh, the whole notion of the mystery of 
this part of the world. What's your underlying message for the reader? Well, the, the underlying message uh, that we're looking at here uh, uh, with an overview, because on one level, Foxes in the Vineyard is a historical fiction, raising the hypothetical historical alternative that we've been talking about. And on another level, the novel is one of a speculative fiction, if you will, where the Nazis, as I mentioned before, serve as metaphor for the mystical religious fanaticism, ultranationalism, and militarism that have continued to infect uh, the Middle East conflict. On this level, there arise broader questions about the presence of evil and the challenge and, and opportunity and responsibility for people of the good faith to act in this uh, context. So there is hope that this Arab-Israeli conflict in your novel could be uh, uh, resolved? Indeed, and uh, I remember that when I was writing this in the mid-90s, uh, right after the assassination of uh, Prime Minister Rabin, I was wondering what happens if peace breaks out and, and the whole premise for my novel disappears? Well, uh, there was obviously no such evolution, and now, many years later, we, we uh, see that the sides are as far or farther apart than they were then. But there indeed uh, is a significant opportunity for movement uh, in the context of a two-state solution as long as there are voices of moderation and goodwill that can uh, somehow be heard again despite the voices from the fringes that uh, tend to drown out the, the former and really uh, create no space for peace. Very challenging to combine information and entertainment and history uh, must have been uh, quite a feat. Well, I certainly in enjoyed the challenge and the opportunity to delve back into the historical aspects of the novel. It was uh, somewhat of a homecoming because, uh, as uh, stated by a medieval Hebrew poet, though I am in the uttermost west, my heart is in the east. And writing the novel gave me a sense of homecoming and a sense of hope because, in looking back on this history, uh, obviously one looks at a lot of opportunities that were missed, mistakes that were made, but it does give one hope that hopefully the uh, past as prologue will not uh, repeat and there will be an opportunity for a way forward. Michael J. Cooper, he is the author of his book, Foxes in the Vineyard, Templars, Nazis, and the Battle for Jerusalem. Michael, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's certainly available uh, through online uh, uh, booksellers like Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble, if I can mention them by name. Definitely. It's also available from the publisher, iUniverse, and it's available at select uh, local bookstores. Uh, and my website, michaeljcooper.net, uh, lists all that information as well as upcoming events that we're having in Northern California. Michael, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Stephen. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! 
Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Bruce's History Lessons. The First Five Years, 2001 through 2006. And the author is Bruce Kaufman. And Bruce joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bruce. Hello. How are you, Steve? Just a thrill to have you with us. We're going to talk about some of your accomplishments as a columnist and also as a writer for Dan Rather. But first, let's jump in here and talk a little bit about your book in general. I'm going to read a couple of things that you have written about your book. You say this, if you like entertaining, fun, often funny, and ironic stories about people, some extraordinary but most ordinary everyday people who did extraordinary things, good and bad, many of which changed the world, then you will love this book. Well, this is over 1,200 columns that you've written through 2001 and 2006, columns concerning categories including politics and law, the American Revolution and its aftermath, the Civil War years, the World Wars, race, sex, business, and culture, the Cold War years, sports, modern times. My goodness, it's about everything you can imagine. How did this all happen, Bruce? Well, um, I've, I've always wanted, I've always been a fan of history. I've always wanted to write about it. And um, I started writing columns for, um, first I started writing lessons for my coworkers in, a, in an energy trade association that I worked at. And I got a lot of nice response from it. And so at one point I asked my boss if I could take a six-month sabbatical to try to launch a newspaper column. And he said, sure, um, be my guest. And I did. And um, I, I came to the attention, actually, of a guy at, at Universal Press Syndicate who said to me, Bruce, the, the, the column at the time was about a thousand words, and he said to me, "Bruce, cut the column in half, and you'll double your chances of getting newspapers interested in it because newspapers are finding themselves pressed for space these days, et cetera, et cetera." So, so 
So I did that, which is why the column is 450 words, um, and it's a weekly column, and I pick an event that occurred that week in history. I have this long calendar that I've been putting together for years. And I like to write about, um, I mean, I like to write about irony. I like to write about um, ordinary people that did extraordinary things. I like to write about humor. I write about all kinds of things. I don't, I don't um, focus solely on what we consider traditional history. I write about sports history. I, write, I wrote about Willie Mays', Willie Mays's famous catch in Polo Field. I write about legal history. I write about um, cultural history. I've written about Elvis Presley and... Um, you know, it's a lot of variety, and as I say, I like irony. I like kind of the weird things that happen in history. For instance, probably not too many people know that David Atchison was, was the 12th president of the United States for about three minutes. Um, so that's the kind of thing I like to do. I like to find kind of the offbeat. I've always said that it's, um, if, if you couldn't be a Hollywood screenwriter stoned on every drug you can think of and come up with the stuff that actually happened in history, it, it, a lot of it's so weird, it's just well, that's what uh, uh, real life is often better than fiction, obviously. Uh, it's a screenwriter's uh, dream. Right. That's absolutely correct. It's, it's stranger than fiction, more interesting than fiction. You just can't dream up the stuff that actually happened. Well, what is it that most appeals to you about history? Well, m what mostly appeals to me really is that People shape history. This whole theory that, the, that, that history is shaped by the impersonal forces of, of, of this or that, I find it to be completely wrong. I don't think that, I know that there are impersonal forces that shape history, but for the most part, it's people. If Abe Lincoln had not been president of the United States in 1860, the, the, the Union would have lost the Civil War and we would have been two countries, if not still two countries today. If Winston Churchill had not been prime minister of England in May of 1940, Nazi Germany would have won the Second World War. Those are the kinds, I, it's actually people that, ha, that actually um, are more uh, shapers of our history than, than impersonal forces, and I find that just fascinating. But I also find fascinating that there are ordinary people that, 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 you know, do extraordinary things. The greatness of history is kind of thrust upon them, and yet there are actually extraordinary people as well who history for some reason ignores. Joseph Warren, uh, during the Revolution, was the mo one of the most important um, of, the, of the rebels in, in the colonies. He was the one that um, ordered Paul Revere to take his famous midnight ride. Warren was much more important to the Revolution than Paul Revere, Revere was. Everybody remembers Paul Revere. Nobody remembers Joseph Warren. And, of course, as you have explained, uh, we know that human behavior, what it is, it doesn't change. Like, doesn't, human behavior is from the, the birth of man. It's just the same. That greed, lust, you know, the unfortunate evil and the power struggle and all of that. That's absolutely correct. And you and I were talking before we started this interview about James Madison and the Constitution. One of Madison's geniuses was that he understood that character, human character does not change, and what drives human character is self-interest. The primary driver of human behavior is self-interest, looking out for yourself, looking out for your family, look, looking out for your loved ones. And he fashioned a government that took that into account, whereas the French Revolution was a total disaster because they ignored human behavior, human interest. And Madison did not, and so he fashioned a government in which factions in which, you know, what Madison Clinton has called factions, people join in and out of groups based on self-interest to protect themselves, their property, their opinions, whatever. And what Madison said was that if we have this government in which factions are not 
denied or not punished or whatever, but are taken into, into account. There will never be a tyranny of the majority. There will never be a majority long enough to tyrannize, tyrannize the rest of us because the majorities will keep jumping in and out of different factions based on self-interest. And that was one of the geniuses of our Constitution. Do you have a favorite period of history? Oh, absolutely. The, American, the post-American Revolution, when the founders were creating the government, um, many people know that, it, that the government that ran the country during the American Revolution was called the Articles of Confederation, and it was, a, it was inadequate to the task of governing the country. There was no central authority. Congress had no authority. It, had, it could only ask the states to give it money if it needed it. It couldn't requisition it. It couldn't tax the people. And so all these guys realized that you know, this was not working, and they went to Philadelphia in 1787 to create a constitution, uh, and it was the four hardest months of all at the time. And they created, and then they had to get it ratified, and then they had to they had to um, substitute a bill of rights, and all of the things, all the arguments, all of the different factions or the, all the different interests that went into forging this constitution in Philadelphia. Just an astonishing period uh, of our history, and that's why we call them demigods because you know. You know, Tom Brokaw can call the World War II generation the greatest generation, but to me it was the founders. It was what they did to create the first government in which popular sovereignty actually worked. How many newspapers are you in right now? I'm in 29 newspapers spread out all over the country, um, mostly in kind of the Northeast and Midwest. Pennsylvania in particular is a really good state for me. Um, And... um, you know, I'm hoping to keep them. I, my highest was about, I, was, I think at 37 was my highest. I've lost a couple of papers, as has every newspaper columnist I know. But, um, you know, it's a lot of fun. I get a lot of great email from readers. I get a lot of email from teachers saying that you, they use my column in their classroom. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, no, and, 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 you know, and, and, and I get a lot of emails saying, you know, that if, if you know, I if, if the history had been taught when I was in high school the way you write about it, then I'd have been, been a lot more interested in history because I try to make it fun. My column, as I always say, is, to, is supposed to be as entertaining as it is informative, and that's and, you know that's that's something that I purposely try to do. And as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, you worked for Dan Rather for a time. I did. I worked for Dan Rather for a time. I wrote his speeches for a while. Um, and um, then uh, Peggy Noonan was writing his radio show, Dan Rather Reporting News Analysis and Commentary, and then Peggy, as a lot of people know, went to work for Ronald Reagan at the White House where she wrote a lot of great speeches for him, including that great speech, The Boys of Ponta Hawk, about the the boys who had to, the 101st, who had to um, go up that huge wall on the Normandy beaches with the Germans firing down at them. And um, Reagan went there and gave a speech at one of the cemeteries there and and gave that speech. Peggy wrote that speech, wonderful speech. Anyway, she went to work for um, the Reagan White House, and so I took over Dan's radio um, uh, program, Dan Dan Rather Reporting News Analysis and Commentary, which is a little bit like writing a column. It's, uh, you know, you want to have a good opening to grab the reader's attention, and you want to have a great close. So the, the reader remembers the column, you know, days afterwards. And that's what I try to do both then and with the newspaper column I write today. What do you think uh, is it about your treatment of history that appeals to your readers? Well, I think it's, I really do think that it's, you know, that I, that I try to make it fun. And I try to, I mean, I, there are times, I mean, I will alternate with a serious topic like the Constitution with a topic of Elvis Presley being drafted in the U.S. Army and how that changed teenage girls all over America. 
And in, in that column in particular, I, I tried to use lines from his, his songs to write the column. I started out the column by going, it, they had a blue, 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 blue Christmas, those, those fans of Elvis when they found out that he was being drafted, which happened in December. And then um, I ended the column by going, you know, as everyone knows, Elvis, is, um, you know, his marriage ended, his career kind of went in the tank, he ballooned up, he took a lot of drugs. In fact, it was a combination of drugs that, you know, caused his death. So on August, um, I don't remember the exact date, but when he died, Elvis Presley returned to sender. And so I will try to, you know, I'll try to write the column in a style that's a little bit different. And I, and as I say, I try to make it fun and entertaining to read. To me, history is not about dates and times and places. It's about people. You have mentioned about the founding fathers. Are, are they the most important people ever born in terms of changing the world, or are there others uh, that you have on your list? No, I would say the founding fathers. I, w- I would say that without question, the founding fathers. They were the. Fir- I mean, they were the first ones to make popular sovereignty work. Uh, never before had a government really. I mean, everybody said, you know, they're. I mean. When they, when they, when our government came into existence in 1789, when it was ratified, it, there was nothing like it in the world before. It was kings, it was dictatorships, it was cardillos, it was all of those things around the world. We were the first one to actually create a government in which the, the rulers were actually beholden to the people. Um, and it, you know, to me, what was really important is the what Constitution is. It comes from the word constitutive. There are certain rights that are set in stone, constitutive rights. You can have legislation that passes laws, okay, and then some a future legislature will, will repeal those laws or change the laws or whatever. But in our Constitution, there are certain things that can never change, and, am- and among those things are um, the, the right to life, liberty, and property, the right to free speech, those kinds of things. And the way our government is set up is if, those, if the rules ever violate those rights, the people are free to um, um, tear down that government and create a new one. But, you know, everybody in the world was rooting against this experiment of succeeding because, you know, it threatened their, every, every dictator and every king or sovereign in the world was rooting against us, and yet we survived and, and it thrived. And, and I think it's the Constitution that has made America the great country that it is. Your graduate thesis on James Madison is still available, one of the most visited articles on the uh, on. Online, yeah. Um, early American Review asked if they could publish my column. This was my master's thesis on James Madison, um, and um, it is still the most visited. I think it's the top ten most visited um, um, links on their website. And and I know that I know that thesis is used um, in it's used in a bunch of colleges. It's required reading for courses in a bunch of colleges. It's on a bunch of Madison and Constitution and government websites. Yeah, Madison's my hero. I, you know, I consider they, he's called the father of the Constitution by historians, and rightly so. He's also called chief architect of the Bill of Rights because he wrote the Bill of Rights. And then he was the one who introduced them to Congress, and he was the one that badgered his fellow congressmen to consider them and then pass them and send them to the states for ratification. So here's James Madison, who nobody pays really much attention to. He is chiefly responsible for two of the three documents on which the United States of America is founded the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Jefferson's responsible for the third one, the Declaration of Independence, but nobody pays any attention to Madison. There wasn't even a government building in Washington, D.C. named after the guy until 1980, which I just find astonishing. 
And you called him the godfather of the Constitution. <laughs> I did because there is, yeah, I did because there is some argument over the whether he should actually be called the Constitution. I think uh, Godfather is probably a better, <laughs> better way. And I had a, and I had a professor at the University of Florida, Gainesville, tell me that he is great, his teaching assistant in, in using my lecture had to explain to his students that by, by Godfather it didn't mean you know a mafia guy. Well, are the lessons of history still relevant and important today? Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think probably now more than ever, um, as you know, we are in this country in particular in a huge argument over the size of government, the responsibility of government, the cost of government, and all those kinds of things. And, and especially with the, you know, the founders and the Constitution, there are valuable lessons to be learned about you know, how, what, what government is supposed to do. Um, we are a federalist system, okay? The, 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 we call it the federal government, but actually when the founders called it, they called it the national government. And then there were the state governments. And um, it's a federalist system, and, and that's what we have, and that means that certain powers go to the federal government, to the national government, certain powers go to the state. Now, over the years, the argument has been that the, that the national government has, has accrued many of the powers and responsibilities that originally the founders um, I expected the states to be taken care of and have the powers to do so. And, um, you know, I, I'm sort of I'm on the side of I think the federal government is much too large, much too um, expansive, much too expensive, and I think that the founders were they alive today would be horrified at, at, at the, the, the extent of government in, that's been residing in our central national government here in Washington, D.C., you're listening to Bruce G. Kaufman, a historian and columnist. I've written a book called Bruce's History Lessons, the first five years, 2001 through 2006. Bruce, and you've got another one coming up. Yes, I do. Um, I'm going to be publishing the second book, Bruce's History Lessons, the second five years, and I'm hoping to have that out in November. Um, it will be, as is my current book, on my website, and my website is www.historylessons.net. That's one word, plural, historylessons.net. You can go on there, and um, you can a link right to um, uh, purchase my book. At the, it, the link on my website will take you right to the Amazon um, link for the book. And I would also um, say that if you go on my website, you can sign up to get my lessons um, once a week or twice a week, actually, now. Um, you can subscribe to it, and um, you will get a, an email on Wednesdays and Saturdays with one of my lessons, and there will be a link. It'll be the, actually, the link will be the title of that week's column, and it will take you right to the column on my blog on my website. So if you enjoy history, I would encourage anyone to sign up for there. Just go to www.historylessons.net. Bruce, it's been an honor to have you on this show on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much. Steve, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.